We'll be looking at 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 24 and following later on. Um, <clears throat> also, if you don't have a copy of the Shorter Catechism, there are some in the back of the church. We, did, we printed some up not too long ago. And you're welcome to keep those, of course, as well. We're several weeks now. We've been looking at the benefits that we have in redemption. The benefits that come to those who have union with Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. These are summarized in question 32. So let's begin by confessing question 32 together. Question 32, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. Now, in the past three weeks, I have preached on the primary benefits that are named here. Those are the first three, of course, justification, adoption, and sanctification. So let's review by actually confessing together the answers to those questions as well. Question 33, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. In question 34, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have our right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Question 35, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So those three, justification, adoption, and sanctification, are the primary benefits that we have in this life once we have been called to salvation and answered that call by God. Today, we come to the secondary benefits that we have in this life. And there are five of these. So we're going to, uh, they, they are listed for us in question 36. So let's confess all of these together. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. These are marvelous benefits, and they're closely related to justification, adoption, and sanctification. In taking up a study of them, I had a choice of doing them all in one, one sermon. Uh, 
and just think you might have been here even longer than you were this morning. And so I decided to, um, I, I like to treat them whenever I teach on the catechism, to go through them one at a time, because that way we can really zero in on them a lot better. So we're going to do it that way for the next few weeks. We'll be looking at these secondary benefits. They're very important. When we say they're secondary, I mean, obviously, justification, sanctification, adoption, those are really primary, but these are very precious. So uh, we'll begin with the assurance of God's love today. This simply refers to the fact that when we are effectually called, then uh, we become certain or we can become certain of, of God's love. There's a sense in which we are certain of his love. We may not be certain of it for us but we at least are certain that he is one who loves his people well. We we can't come to any other conclusion because we see his way of salvation and what he's done in Christ. And there's no way to see that, what he's done for sinners, and to think that God is not a God with great love for his people. But even though it's something that every Christian knows, it's also something that we can become sure of, more sure of, as we go on in the Lord. In fact, it will be our privilege to increase in our understanding of God's love, not only in this life, but forever. Even in heaven, though we will have perfect knowledge and that it won't have error, We will only have knowledge, we will still be creatures, and we won't have infinite knowledge like God does, and the knowledge of his love will be something that we will grow in as we will never exhaust the glories of our God as we learn of him. We can't even think, sometimes people say, oh, I'm going to be bored in heaven. Uh, it, It could not be so with the glorious God that we serve. We will grow in our comprehension of his love. So even today, as we study this topic, let's make it our goal today to increase in our assurance of God's love more than we have been assured of that before. So for our scripture reading, again, is selected 1 John 3 and verse 24. That's uh, the last verse in chapter 3, but I want to tie it in with with, with chapter 4. We'll go on to verse 19 then. But please give careful attention as I read God's word to you. 1 John 3, 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. And this we know, 
I'm sorry, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this is the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might believe through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God in any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. That servant of old, to advise them that it would be better for them if they rejected God as their God and instead of submitting to God, if they went according to God's will. And they rebelled. The result their offspring became workers of iniquity, such as God hates. They were cast out of God's presence and cut off forever apart from God's mercy. And those who joined in Satan's rebellion, as those who joined in Satan's rebellion, they were sentenced to Satan's punishment. And what was that? That was everlasting punishment in hell, the lake of fire. Revelation 20.10 describes it as a place where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20.14 and 15 says that all who are not redeemed by Jesus will be cast into that place. But as we have seen in previous sermons, God determined in his great mercy and love that he would not leave us all to perish under his wrath. He loved the world and he determined that he would save the world. And he sent Jesus, his son, so that the world might not perish, but would be saved. All who are redeemed by Jesus are delivered from bondage to their sin and rebellion and come to him in order that they might have complete forgiveness of sin. And as we have seen, they are immediately justified, adopted, and begin to be progressively sanctified. They are the objects of God's incredible love. Everything is completely changed for them as they are fully accepted through Christ as righteous in God's eyes, fully pardoned for all their sins. They have become heirs of eternal life with an entirely new destiny. As such, they are destined to be brought into God's glorious house with Jesus, Jesus their Redeemer, to live as co-heirs with Him, to live in the love of God the Father for all eternity as God's adopted children. If there is anything that you want to be sure of, it is this. You don't want to be unsure of your everlasting destiny. You want to know that you're an object of the Father's love and not of His wrath. Yet there are many who live without any substantial assurance of God's love. They can be found in several different categories. There are those who say, I can't be bothered with such things. I live my life now and I'll find out what comes after that when the time comes. 
They sometimes complain about all the different religions. And they use that as an excuse to be indifferent. There's no way we can know, they say. They have no fear of God. No fear of their creator. They don't really want to think about him. So they avoid it as much as they can. And of course, they can't completely avoid it. But they push it away and divert themselves as much as they can. They do do not wish to be bothered. How foolish this is. If there's something that is real and that's set there before and you ignore it and ignore the warnings, it's very foolish. Then there are those, a second kind of person, who simply assume that God does love them. Some of them will quote the scripture that God is love, and then they'll assume that if he is love, that means he must surely love them and will never do anything to harm them. They latch on to the assumption without considering the fact that God does, that God does love every, I'm sorry, that God does not love everyone or everything. For example, does God love Satan? No, Satan is God's enemy. God destroys all the workers of iniquity. Does God love oppressors and murderers and blasphemers and liars who will have their part in the lake of fire? Of course, he does not. If it has been pointed out how foolish it would have been for Noah when he was shut up on the ark and the people were perishing outside the ark, the door closed and they cannot go in to have a bumper sticker that says, smile, God loves you on the back of the ark. How unfitting that would be. We should not tell people that God loves them when the Bible says that he hates all workers of iniquity. We need to warn them to depart from iniquity, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, there is a sense in which we can say that God loves all of his creatures. But when we have rejected him and rebelled against him as we have all done, we become vessels of his wrath and we fall under his displeasure. And, and if in his great abounding love and grace, he does come to us to redeem us, then we, we are restored. But if not, then we have nothing but a, a miserable future to look for. I know that you've all, this is so prevalent in our society, I know that you've all been to funerals of those who did not know the Redeemer and they were declared to surely be in heaven. This is a lie. This is wrong. It's deceptive. It's harmful. I've been to funerals like that quite a lot. Yes, Jesus tells us that only a few will find their way to glory and that it's only those that God calls who repent of their sins and who trust in him that do not perish. It's very foolish to assume that because God is love, that means that you're loved by him when we are sinners who are cast out. If you think about that, it, it truly does make sense. Does that mean that God does not love sinners? No, God loves sinners and he restores sinners, but he doesn't do that with all sinners. And then there is a third category of person. So that was the ones that just assume that God loves them. I, I, have a, um, I had a great aunt that after I came to know the Lord, I went to talk to her about the Lord. And that was what she said, with no basis. God is love, so I know that he loves me. And she had no salvation, no, 
She saw no need to repent of her sins, no need to go to Christ, no need to turn from the wrath, like John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come. Very sad. Okay, then there's a third category. There are those who admit that they do not know if God loves them or not, and they assume that they cannot know. The Muslim religion, for example, has no redeemer. So its devotees are are left to guess about where they stand with Allah. They cannot know until the day of judgment. Well, if their consciences were pure, they would be able to know, for we all know that we're guilty and sinful and that we can't, wouldn't go well before God. They don't know that if they'll be accepted or if they'll be rejected by him, and so they live their entire lives in a fear and an uncertainty. And with Roman Catholicism, there is a false unbiblical doctrine of purgatory so that your average person is not yet acceptable to God and must spend years of purgatory to pay for their own sins. Of course, many of Rome's devotees in Canada do not admit that uncertainty, but they've bought into the popular notion of our day that God is love, so they must be objects of his love, or they've simply become indifferent about the whole thing, having no fear of God whatsoever. But I tell you, if there is a way to be sure about God's love, and there is, then you want to make sure that you are loved by him. Don't let yourself be indifferent about this matter. And don't rely on some worthless assumption or content yourself with not knowing because you want to pursue and look for the assurance of God's love. Okay, so how can you obtain the assurance of God's love? God's great love for his people is clearly seen in sending Christ to save them. John tells us plainly in verse 9, that this is how his love is manifested, how it's shown. You want to know about the love of God? You look wherever it is manifested. Where is it manifested? Where do you see the love of God? Even for sinners, where you would not expect to find it. Don't expect to find Satan or, or his demons. Don't expect to find God's love there because God hates sin and rebellion and corruption and defilement and all those things. So you wouldn't expect to see it in, in, in uh, people either because we're all sinners. Yet, it's manifested, it's revealed. Where is it? 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Nowhere else is God's love to be seen more than in this great act. He sent his only son in order that we might live through him. We were dead in sin. We were headed for the lake of fire with Satan and all that are his. We were headed for this destiny. We were justly and officially condemned by Almighty God. And yet, even though we were wretched, the love of God was manifested in sending his Son to redeem us and to give us life. In verse 10, John makes it clear that it is he who initiated this love. We did not initiate it. We ourselves did nothing to pay for our sins. There was not a shred of love in us for God. It was all His initiative. It says then in verse 10, And this is love, not that we love God. That's not where it started. But that we, He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you remember what a propitiation is? It's an appeasement. 
turning away of anger, settling account with one who has authority and who is a judge and has charged you with condemnation, who has condemned you. God sent Jesus to be the one who would be punished for our sins, the sins of those that God loved before the foundation of the world. He owed, we owed to God eternity in hell for our sins. That was the price that our sins demanded for justice to be done. Yet he took that penalty upon himself. He sent Jesus to make satisfaction of the debt that was ours, to take all the punishment so that we could be forgiven. If God did this, if God made this tremendous sacrifice for his people, there can be no question about God's great love. This is where his love is manifested like nowhere else. We are the offenders. We are the rejectors, the despisers. We're the ones who went wrong, who rejected our God and refused to have God as our God. And yet he sent his only son to bear punishment for us. And the son who is also God came willingly and died for us. We think it a great thing for a person to step in and take the punishment for his friend. But God did this for those who made themselves loathsome enemies and had no right to any such kindness. God would be perfectly loving to condemn us all as he will do with the fallen angels. Every one of them will be condemned. God would be, there would be no injustice, there would be no lack of love. But his love is manifested over the top that he would save some, those who do not deserve it, such kindness. This is love. Not that we love God, but the truth that God is love and that his love is manifested through Christ. So what we want to look at now is how we can find his love. He says, God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. To abide in something is to live in it, you know, to dwell in it. There's a very beautiful description. This is a very beautiful description of the Christian life you constantly love. <clears throat> we, we are surrounded by love and we exercise love in this place. And it is God's great love for us in Christ that sets the pace for it all. <clears throat> in our text, John describes two ways that we can be sure that we are those who abide in God and in his love. These two ways. First, we can know that we abide in his love if we love one another. See, if you're dwelling in the love, then you're exercising love. So John lays this out for us in verse 7 and 8. He starts out by encouraging us to love one another. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He then explains that our love for each other is the very thing that distinguishes us from God as God's people. We don't have love for one another, you don't have this mark. So, so much so that to use John's word, words at the end of verse 7, he says, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. It's a distinguishing mark. No one has it in them to truly love until they are born of God and so abide in love. 
This love is not so much a part of God's house that anyone who does not have this love does not know God. I'm sorry, it is so much a part of God's house that anyone who doesn't have this love does not know God. Verse 8 could not be more clear about that. Look at it. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Whatever you may say about yourself in your relationship with God, if you don't love God's people, you don't really know him. That's what John's saying. And then verse 12, John repeats it again that if we love one another, it's a sure indication that he abides in us and us in him. Look at that. No one has seen God at any time. <clears throat> if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now, as Paul stresses in 1 Corinthians 13, the true evidence of God's spirit is the love that we have for one another. You remember the Corinthians said, oh, I've got God's spirit because I was prophesying, I was speaking in tongues, I was doing all these things. He says, no, that's not a sign. Judas did miracles and healed people and all sorts of things when he was a disciple. No, the sign is that you love God's people. That's the sign. And that's what Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians 13 in the middle of chapter 12 to 14 of uh, 1 Corinthians. So when we love, it shows... But there is another mark that we abide in God's love that is actually foundational to this first mark that we love one another. Second, we know that we abide in his love when we believe the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. So your love for your brothers and sisters grows out of this love. Okay, that that we um, we believe the love that God has for us in Christ. We've already looked at verse nine and ten which show us the great love that God has for his people that's manifested. How is it manifested? That he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We have seen this as the ultimate expression of love. If you want to see God's love in the way that it's most clearly shown, then that's where you go. The creator that gave himself, gave his son for wretched sinners to reconcile them, that he should bear our punishment. But we may know that we abide in this great but we may know that we abide in this great love we have the assurance of God's love for us when we believe that God sent Jesus to be the savior of the world okay when we believe that we see the great love look at verse 13 through 16 by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit Okay, that's what we read before, but then it goes on. And we have seen, with having God's Spirit, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. God's Spirit shows us that we are sinners that are so wretched that we need much more than bulls of lambs and goats sacrificed under the Old Testament. We see and testify that God has sent His only Son to be our Savior. To be the propitiation for our sins. Instead of resisting this truth and being offended by it and saying, I don't need all that. I'm not that bad. I don't need that much. We accept that. We confess it. And then we see the great love of God. If you don't confess that you're a sinner that's really in need and you think that you've been mistreated and abused and got worse than you deserve and all that sort of thing, then you're never going to really see God's love and saving you because you're resenting God. So verse 15, John tells us that anyone who does this, who 
who truly does come and see that Jesus is the Savior of the world and such, that uh, anyone who does this truly does abide in God and God in him. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We confess that Jesus who came in the flesh truly is the Son of God and was sent from heaven to redeem us, that that's the whole reason he came. You've got to be quite a mess if that's what was required to redeem you. you, you you've got, if you confess that, if you acknowledge that, then you see what a great thing it was for you or anyone to be redeemed. And when we know and believe that God loves us, we have the assurance of his love, as verse 16 explains. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So to put this all together, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, you come into God and into his great love to dwell there, to abide there forever. It's the place where you're loved by God, by that great saving love that's in Christ, and then the place where you're enabled to love other people. And so if you're in that place, then you know and have assurance of God's love for you. You're brought from sin and death into the arena of divine love. If you believe in what God has done in Christ, and if you love your neighbor, you can have assurance that you're in the arena of God's love. It's not that you earn this by, by loving your neighbor, but it's that when you have come to this salvation in Jesus Christ, then you will love your neighbor. Just as when we've been forgiven, then we will forgive. So if, you've, if you can have what the catechism calls the assurance of his love, it's because you're receiving that love, you're trusting the God, and you're giving out that love. Then you're abiding and have the assurance of God's love. What a great thing it is to have this assurance of God's love. It's an assurance that you should want to grow stronger and stronger in you. And John, the whole epistle, 1 John, talks about that, how we know that we know him. So let me show you some of the excellent fruits of this assurance of God's love. First, assurance of God's love gives you a tremendous admiration for God. Because in the cross, as we've seen, we see the, the uh, incredible love that God has sent his son and caused his son to die for sinners. And when you see that love, it captivates your heart that you, sh you know, your God should have loved you so much. It fills you with a responsive admiration for him. Just as a woman, when she sees her husband making great sacrifices for her, then it gives her a delight and an assurance of his love. Why would he do this for me? And she admires him. She says, look at how, how what much he loves. It's a, it's a tremendous thing. Second, it brings tremendous comfort to be assured of God's love. To be unsure of God's acceptance of you, to be unsure of what's going to become of you, it's a terrifying thing. And the more you face God and acknowledge his majesty and power, his purity, justice, and wrath, the more terrifying it is. So that the more comforting it is to know of his great love for you, that he sent his son to die. As John says in verse 18, perfect love casts out fear. Third, and related to this, assurance of God's love gives you trust. 
When you're, God, when you're sure of God's love, it, uh, it makes that wonderful question, Romans 8, that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> All the more powerful. When you see his great love and are sure of it, you can be sure that this one who never takes his eye off you will constantly protect you and will not let anything harm you. Fourth, assurance of God's love gives you tremendous hope. If God has such a great love for you, he will perfect what concerns you. He will indeed bring you into his house that you may be fully enveloped in his love forever. So you won't just abide in his love in this life, but for all eternity. That's our hope. Remember what we saw when we looked at adoption with John 17. Now we can have boldness in the day of judgment because... Oh, I'm sorry, this, this, is, uh, this is verse 17 here. Now we can have boldness in the day of judgment because we know that it will be a day of great blessing for us when we see him. And that does tie in with the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 17, where Jesus said that he wanted us to be with him where he is, that we might be able to see the love that, that the Father had from him before the foundation of the world and to be living in that love. We'll not be condemned in that day as others. We have hope. And we're brought into his glorious presence as those who have been justified and adopted. Fifth, the assurance of God's love, as we've already seen in this lesson, enables us to love one another. We have seen how John explained that having love for each other is a mark that we're abiding in God's love. But as we grow, and this is the important thing that we're looking at now, as we grow in that assurance, we become more able to love others more and more when you play sports and you see a pro you admire him and you want to imitate him you say look at what he does and then you try to do that too look at how he did that and you try to imitate this is what we do when we become admirers of God's love and we become sure more and more sure of it we become more and more the benefit is we're able to love others better Six, when you're assured of God's love, it stirs you up to testify of his love. You want to make that love known to others so that they might come to admire it too. You know, like it says in Psalm 117, look at God's mercy. Praise God, you Gentiles, you people who are outside the covenant, for his mercy toward us. Why would they praise God for mercy toward us? Because there you see the love of God manifested through his redeeming grace. And then you call those ones, you see, to come and be one of us through Jesus Christ. When you see something beautiful, something lovely, you want to show it off to others so they can appreciate it too. You say, look at that. See a beautiful sunset. Look at that. You point to people to, to, to check it out. And when this beautiful love is the love that God sent his Savior to redeem the people, you want to tell people God's love. So that they will know of, of the Lord Jesus too. You cannot speak of the things that you have seen, but, but speak of the things that you have seen and heard because they delight your heart. Seventh, when you're assured of God's love, it enables you to be very patient with others. He loved you when you were an enemy. You're able to love your enemies. And as he loves you despite all your present failings, it enables you to keep on loving others despite their failings. There's not a hardness and a harshness about you because you see how he loves you. Eighth, when you're assured of God's love, it enables you to freely confess your sins. That's interesting, isn't it? You see, this, you see that his love is rooted in Jesus Christ. 
whom he sent to atone uh, for your sins. So rather than being ridiculous and trying to hide your sins, I mean, you're really ridiculous when you try to hide your sins. Instead of doing that, you're able to come out with them. Because you see the great love, the forgiveness that is in Christ. He sent Christ to be your propitiation. You don't have to pretend like you didn't do anything, like you're better than you are. You can be raw with it. You can be, you can be honest about it. Because God sent Jesus to deal with that. You know that God loves you, so instead of hiding your sins, you come for help. You come for forgiveness. You come for restoration. If, if a child has issues and rebellion and, and trouble in their life, sin in their life, and their own parents, you know, they, they, they know that if they tell their parents about it, then they'll be castigated and, and, and berated and everything, then they're going to keep it in. But if they know that there is forgiveness with their parents and that if they go and tell them and say, I need help with this, I have struggle with this, and then their parents welcome them and help them and embrace them, then it's, it's a whole different kind of a situation. So if we look at God as one who's going to castigate us when we come to him, we're never going to come with the things, with our sins. But if we see him as he is, then we'll come and, and be welcomed. You know that God loves you, so instead of hiding, you, you come for help. As James says, you lament and mourn and weep because you see how great your sins are and because you see that God will forgive you. So many wonderful benefits to, to being sure of God's love, um, as you can see. But I guess we have to close at some point here with that. So I'll give you one more. <laughs> uh, ninth, that... The more you are assured of God's love for you, the more you love him. Our love for him is a responsive love to his love. Verse 19 says so. We love him because he first loved us. Our relationship was one with God. Our love should grow and grow and grow and grow and grow right on into eternity. For all eternity, we'll see more and more of his love. And as we do, we will love him and each other more and more. And you know where we'll look when we're, you know, 10,000 years from now? Where will we look to see God's love? Where is, where is it manifested? What did we learn today? It was manifested with Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. This happened in the world, in history, right where we are, as a testimony for all eternity of God's great love. We will never unpack the riches of that when we see what God is like and we see his majesty, we'll be so overwhelmed with that. And it will continue to, to grow and develop even more and more and more. What a precious thing that it is to have the assurance of God's love. Ask him to give you a greater and greater sense of his love as it is manifested in Jesus Christ. Pour yourself into loving one another. And then set off the, that will set off a chain reaction. Because then your sense of his love will increase your love. And when your love increases, that will give you a greater assurance of his love. And when that increases, you will grow to love others more and more. And when that increases, it will give you a greater assurance. And it keeps going and going and going. This is the way that John, this is what John is talking about here. But before I close, I want to add a word here to those of you who do not have this assurance of God's love to you. It is possible to be a true believer and not be sure of his love for you. There are those who know that God has great love for his people. They know that 
His love is given through Jesus Christ alone, who is crucified for the sins of his people, and that whoever repents and believes will be saved. They know that. But they're not so sure that they have truly repented and believed. They hope that they have, but they're not sure that they have. If this is your experience, you're addressed in God's word. There's several places that we could go. But in Isaiah 50, really stands out. Isaiah 50, verse 10. It says, Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? It's all the same person that's spoken of there. There are two things that show that you are a true believer, if those four things are true of you. First, that you are said to fear the Lord. A person who fears the Lord is one who acknowledges that, that God is the Lord, that the Lord is the Lord. He sees him as God and he believes his word. He cannot deny him and he also knows that every person needs to be reconciled to God and that the only way to be reconciled is to be justified by the blood of Jesus Christ crucified. You are also said here to obey the voice of God's servant. God's servant, of course, refers to Jesus Christ in Isaiah, and this person obeys him. Not perfectly, of course. No one does that. But you endeavor to obey his voice, to keep his commandments, and to do his will, to believe the things that he has spoken. So you really do believe, and you really have repented. But you have this problem that Isaiah describes. You walk in darkness and have no light. For whatever reason, you do not have a sense of God's love. You have a sense of his love for his people, but no confidence that you are one of his people. The very sad state of affairs, but it's a very real one. And Isaiah addresses it here. Isaiah tells you what to do at the end of verse 10. It's all in one verse here. Let him, okay, that one, we just said that who fears the Lord, obeys the voice of his servant, walks in darkness and has no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Isaiah basically says, cast yourself on God about this. You don't have to have any great strength to do that. I love what, uh, what Charles Spurgeon said about that in a sermon I read from him a number of years ago where he said that um, you just you just fall upon the Lord. You know you don't have to you're, you don't have to have any strength whatsoever to trust in the Lord. You just you just fall upon Him. You're in His care, His hands. There's not you, you don't have to do anything. You just trust in the name of the Lord. Trust. Let Him trust and rely upon His God. Really. In that situation, you very much like the tax collector in Jesus' parable. Luke 18, 10. Jesus said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So did that man fall upon the Lord? Did he rely upon his God? No, he relied upon himself. Very plainly. What about the tax collector? The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What does Jesus say about that man? He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, your need, and you cry out to God for mercy, you beat upon your chest, you go down to your house justified. You see that you're a sinner who needs to be saved, and you cry out to God's mercy, for God's mercy, and you will be saved. That's how it works. Continue to trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon your God, and you will be in heaven at last, whether you believe that you will or not. Make it a habit to praise God for his love and mercy to his people. And think about how great that love and mercy is in Christ. Even if you're not sure of that love to you, you can delight in God's love that you see toward others. Ask him to give you assurance of his love. But even if he does not, you'll still be in heaven if you have cast yourself upon him for that mercy. Yes, do all that we have seen in 1 John to to gain assurance. Consider the love that God has for his people in Christ. That will help you gain your assurance. How he sent him to be a propitiation for sins. Such marvelous love, isn't it? Like look look at that love. Keep Keep looking at how great that love is, how deep the sin is, how great the Savior is. As much as you're able, live in that love, abide in it. And then, in beholding that love, imitate it. You're not going to do very well. None of us do very well imitating it. But by God's grace, cast yourself upon Him. Ask Him to enable you to, to love others. He says to you in John 6 37 all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out that's our great hope so yes normal thing for a Christian is to serve as we serve God that we grow in our assurance of God's love and we enjoy that but uh, there are those that will go to heaven who do not have that assurance they have assurance that God loves people but not sure that he loves them But uh, how thankful we should be and how glad we should be and how beautiful it is to behold the Lord, his great love for us in sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Now please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you and praise you for your great love that has been manifested in sending your Son. This is the love of God. This is where it is seen. That God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lord, help us to find great delight and pleasure in that. Help us, Lord, to find rest and peace. Help us, Lord, to give ourselves wholeheartedly to to Your service who has loved us so well. Oh, Father, we know that we don't love others very well. But we see here in this passage that if we are able to love our brothers in the, because they are our brothers in Christ, that it means that you have done a work in us. Because we can't do that on our own. And Father, we ask you to, to make that love stronger in us. Help it to be real, Lord. Help it to develop. Lord, it's so, it's so slender in us. But we thank you that your love is not slender at all. We see what a marvelous thing it is and how freely 
that you invite sinners to come to you. Indeed, Lord, your love for your creatures overall is shown in that you call all people everywhere to repent and believe. And we pray, Lord, that that we might see many people doing that. that They would come to you to be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord's blessing. Now, may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. May it be so.